Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. It is in fact the 10th episode, a very special episode, and we have a very special topic for today, dirty and obscene poets. One thing to keep in mind here, I always put a warning on episodes of this podcast for explicit content, not that they're really all that explicit most of the time, but the subject matter can be very out there and you really just never know how people will react to it. So it always seems like a, a prudent thing to put that on there. In this case, the explicit warning is real. So if you are easily offended by the kind of subject matter that an obscene poet would talk about, including sexual matters, you may not want to listen to this episode. So now that we've gotten rid of those people, we can have some fun. Now, the earliest references to obscenity in Greek literature come from poets from what is called the Archaic Period. And these are poets who are often grouped together under the term of lyric poetry. There was probably a musical element to the recitation of their poems. Quite often, they were meant to be recited at drinking parties, what were called symposia. One of the most notorious was named Archilochus. Archilochus was from a small island called Paros. Paros is one of the islands of the group called the Cycladic Islands, the Cyclades. He was engaged to a girl on the island named Neoboli. And virtually everything we know about Archilochus comes from his own poetry, by the way. Archilochus became very angry when Neoboli's father, Lycambes, for reasons unknown, decided to call off the wedding. Archilochus took this as a really serious personal slight, so he started to recite poetry in public on the island that was very, very scandalous, saying these horrible things about Lycambes and his daughter Neoboli and his other children, too. He tells Lycambes that you seem ridiculous to the townspeople, and it's better that I'm not going to marry Neoboli anyway. I don't want my babies to be born blind and premature. And he brags in one of these lyric poems that he was able to seduce Neoboli's sister. The story is that the shame that descended on Lacambe's Neoboli and that entire family from these poems was so intense that Lacambe's and Neoboli committed suicide, that they hanged themselves. Ancient Greece was very much what we would call a shame culture. To lose your honor was seen as almost worse than death, or would be answerable only by death. Archilochus claims that he left the island and traveled, traveled as a mercenary soldier, says that he earns his bread and wine with his spear, goes to places like another Greek island called Thassos in the north. His poems talk about warfare and also about running away from fights when things look bad. That's probably his most famous poetic fragment, where he threw away his shield and took off running, and some Thracian tribesman has his shield now, and he says, I hope he likes it, I can always get another just as good. Seemed to have something in particular about Thracians, because he talks about his sexual encounters a lot in his poetry, and he describes one woman as performing fellatio like a Thracian sucking beer through a straw. From probably right around the same time, although we can't precisely date these individuals, but another archaic Greek poet who was notorious for his use of language was Hipponax. Hipponax was from a town called Ephesus, now on the coast of Turkey. And Hipponax has a lot to say about two brothers, Bupalus and Athenus, who seem to have been not just rivals, but real enemies of his, that they were sculptors, and that they made a statue of Hipponax that was very unflattering. Now, Hipponax is under no illusions about his own attractiveness, but he attacks them in return. He calls Bupalus a metrakoitos, 
which is literally translated out of the Greek as motherfucker. But he claims that Bupalus actually would do that act, that he actually would copulate with his own mother. And there is a story that Bupalus and Athanas also killed themselves out of shame. Again, Hipponax says a lot about sexuality, about his various sexual exploits. But then there seems to have been a moment where he was afflicted with impotence. And they didn't have the kinds of pills that men who suffer from such problems can use today. There seems to have been some kind of a ritual that you could engage in. And this is what Hipponax said that he did. So Hipponax hired a group of women, most likely prostitutes, and they started a ritual or some kind of a treatment where they whipped Hipponax's scrotum with stinging metals. And at the same time, they inserted something into his anus, possibly a dildo. The pain was so intense that he lost control of his bowels. And he describes a swarm of dung beetles descending upon the scene. The glory that was ancient Greece, folks. There you have it. A very similar ritual to cure impotence is detailed in an ancient novel, the Satyricon, written by Petronius, a writer who was eventually forced into suicide by the emperor Nero after he was implicated in a plot against that emperor. The ritual is performed on a character named Enculpius. There's a scene where he actually berates his flaccid penis, saying, what do you have to say for yourself, you shame of gods and men? To be honest, the Satyricon probably deserves an episode all its own. It's incredibly surreal. The same conspiracy against Nero that brought down Petronius also brought down a poet named Lucan. And there's a very funny story about Lucan and something he said about Nero before the conspiracy was unmasked and a whole group of people died. In Rome, they had public toilets that were A, co-ed, and B, had no dividers between the toilet seats. You can actually visit some of these at archaeological sites around the Mediterranean. They're simply seats cut into the concrete, and a water channel flowed underneath to take away the waste, and they cleaned themselves with sponges on sticks. So you have to imagine no privacy, just sitting there with your fellow Romans. But Lucan happened to be using a public toilet, and he started to use the facility rather noisily, and he quoted one of Nero's poems, because Nero really thought that he was this brilliant writer, musician, artist, actor, athlete, all the above. He was good at none of these things, but he got away with it because he was emperor. So Nero wrote some really bad poetry, too. And Lucan quoted a line from one of Nero's recent poems, where he's talking about the eruption of the volcano Etna, and he says, the thunder down below, in reference to his own bodily functions at that second. And a whole group of people fled the public latrine because they realized he had just made fun of Nero's poetry and nobody wanted to be caught near him, figuring he's going to be arrested soon afterwards. I've actually digressed a little bit into Roman history already, and I'll have a lot more to say about Roman authors later in this episode. But I'm going to go ahead and return to ancient Greek times because obscene, profane insults directed at people that you see in those early archaic poets like Archilochus and Hipponax persist into the classical period, but in an entirely different type of performance. Comedic plays, written and performed first in Athens and then later in other Greek city-states. There's really only one comedic author whose scripts have survived in entirety for at least a few of his plays, and this is Aristophanes. 
Aristophanes' comedy plays are a goldmine of ancient Greek profanity. Just as one example, a slang term for the female genitalia that he uses is koiros, which literally translates to piggy. And so a term for a prostitute literally translates to a piggy merchant. It may sound all goofy and childish to us, but you really have to think of this word as having the same kind of nastiness to it that the C word does in English. Now, we're not going to leave the guys alone either in this. There's a term for the penis, kole, which literally translates to meat bone. A word for an erection is mikes, literally mushroom. And for anus, we have proctos, which obviously you can see in the modern term proctology. Also katapigon, which would literally mean the underside of the butt. But both of them, the way that they're used, have the connotation that asshole does. Probably his most famous comedy is called Lysistrata. It's named after a female character, although women were not allowed to perform on stage in ancient Greece. Female parts always played by men. But in Lysistrata, which was performed late in the Peloponnesian War, Athens and Sparta have been at war for many, many years, and it looks like the war is never going to end. And Lysistrata leads the women of Athens in a kind of rebellion, which starts with a sex strike against their husbands. So she tells them you're not getting anything until you end this war. You might be wondering if Aristophanes or anyone else would get in trouble for writing these comedies. We do get some scattered reports of attempts at censorship. There was also a case where Aristophanes said something very nasty about a politician in general named Cleon, and Cleon took him to court, effectively for what we will call today slander, but he lost the case. Aristophanes was acquitted. And the following year, he wrote another comedy where he said something even worse about this guy, Cleon. For example, of a comedian who did pay the price, we're now in the 3rd century BC. Sotides was known for his scandalous, obscene poetry, hardly any of which has survived, unfortunately. It was probably a lot like Hippanax's poetry. And Sotides lost his life because of a poem that he wrote making fun of the king and queen of Egypt. Egypt was under the control of the family of the Ptolemies. Ptolemy, one of Alexander the Great's generals, was able to seize control of Egypt for himself after Alexander's death. He became Ptolemy I, and after his death, his son took his place as Ptolemy II. Ptolemy II married his own sister, Arsinoe. Sotides had spent a lot of time in Alexandria, the capital of the Ptolemies in Egypt, he happened to be outside of Egypt, however, when he recited a poem making fun of this situation. And he said that Ptolemy II had inserted himself in an unholy place. There's a backstory as to how Arsinoe had ended up married to her own brother. She had been married twice before this. Arsinoe was married off by her father to a man named Lysimachus, who was the ruler of a small kingdom in the region of Thrace. That would be the southern part of Bulgaria today. And she had several children with Lysimachus. By the way, Arsinoe was probably about 15 when she married Lysimachus, and Lysimachus was about 60. Lysimachus was killed in battle, and she found herself in a very dangerous position. And she realized that she needed to get married again to make a new political alliance in order to protect herself and her sons. So she gravitated to an individual also named Ptolemy, but we know him by his nickname Caranus or Thunderbolt. Caranus agreed to marry her, even though Caranus was her half-brother. He was another son of Ptolemy. Ptolemy I had a number of wives and consorts, so he had children all over the place. 
So they got married, but then Karanis ordered the deaths of her sons, and she knew she would be next. She escaped from Macedonia, where she was at the time, by boarding a ship in disguise. She had exchanged clothing with one of her own slaves. So she got away, made her way back to Egypt. Old Thunderbolt himself lost his life soon afterwards trying to stop an invasion of Gauls. He got his head chopped off for his troubles. So having finally returned home to Egypt after all these years, she is going to marry her not just half-brother, her full brother, Ptolemy II. What the Ptolemies were doing was echoing a custom from the ancient Egyptian pharaohs of brother-sister marriage. This was done so that men from outside families could not make a claim on the pharaoh's dynasty, and they justified it because the god Osiris had a son with his sister Isis in Egyptian mythology. You might ask yourself in regards to this, wouldn't that have produced birth defects in the children? Most likely it did, but that would have been yet another sign that the family of the pharaohs was divine, that they were different from your average human beings. Now, Sotides had already left Egypt when this poem became public. He probably thought he would be safe where he was, but he was hunted down, captured by one of Ptolemy's sea commanders, a man named Patroclus. And Patroclus had Sotides sealed up in a lead container and dropped into the Mediterranean Sea. Now, we have Latin authors that were often known for using this kind of language as well. And one thing to keep in mind that all these authors gave classicists headaches in more prudish times, back, say, in the Victorian period or even early in the 20th century. For the Latin language, we have Catullus. Every beginning Latin student learns something written by Catullus. Of course, beginning students aren't usually exposed to the really extreme poetry of Catullus, but I have my own personal recollections of the first time I found out about just how dirty Catullus could be. In grad school, I had a Latin teacher who surprised me and everyone else in the class one day by distributing to everyone a handout that he had typed up, listing all of the profane words both the Latin words and their rather colorful English translations that were found within a poem of his that we were going to translate that day. This is the kind of thing that would probably get you fired from a teaching position today. Catullus is mainly known for his poetry of what you might call lovesickness. He was in love with a woman who he calls Lesbia, not because she liked girls, too. It's a reference to the poetess Sappho of Lesbos, who did write love poetry to other women. And that does give us the modern term lesbian. But calling her lesbia was really just making a reference to poetry itself. We're not sure who lesbia was, but it was probably a woman named Clodia who was a bit notorious. This was the late Roman Republic, the first century BC, very turbulent time of Roman history. And Clodia had many, many boyfriends in addition to Catullus, and this seemed to just really eat him up inside. So he pours out his frustrations, his anger, his jealousy into his poetry. But like Hipponax and Archilochus of the past, he likes to use his poetry to attack various enemies, too. He didn't like people who criticized his poetry. And there were two men, Furius and Aurelius, where in one of his poems, number 16 in the Corpus of Catullus, he starts this poem stating that he will orally and anally rape these two individuals, Pedicabo egoos et irumabo. And he says, a poet can be moral, but his poetry is allowed to be filthy. He has another poem, it's number 97 in his collection, where he goes after a man named Emilius. We don't know really anything about him. 
But Cadullus complains that this guy Emilius is really physically repulsive, both in his appearance as well as in his personal habits. That his breath is incredibly vile because he brushes his teeth with urine every day. That his gums gape like a mule's vagina as she pees. However, despite all of these physical problems, he says that Emilius is a man who gets quite a few women. Catullus doesn't understand why these women just don't go sleep with donkeys or lick the butt of a hangman. Moving a little bit further in time to the time of the first emperor Augustus, we have an author named Ovid. Ovid is known for an essay that he wrote as a bit of a tongue-in-cheek satire called The Art of Love, Ars Amatoria. And it's meant to be a guide for picking up women in the city of Rome. The best places to meet women, the best ways to get conversations going, trying to find a seat next to a woman at a theater or a gladiator show or a chariot race, and pretending to drop something near them, and then nonchalantly starting a conversation. But he also talks about deception. And he says that, well, it's important that a woman see that you're an emotional guy once in a while. So she should see you cry. And if you can't get those tears to flow just when you want him to, stick your finger in your eyes when she's not looking. Ovid was eventually banished by the Emperor Augustus because he was implicated in an affair with Augustus's granddaughter. And adultery with a member of the imperial family was actually treason. So he was exiled to a town on the Black Sea and never allowed to return to Rome. Someone who was part of that same inner circle of authors in the time of Augustus was Horace. Horace has a collection of poems of an extremely cynical and satirical nature, and sexuality features in several of them also. He has one poem which describes the scene of witches trying to dig up human remains on the Esquiline Hill within a garden, but Roman gardens had a guardian, you might say, Priapus, the Roman penis god. Yes, they had a god for that. You would want to have a statue of Priapus in your garden to increase the fertility of all the plants in the garden. Kind of a strange take on the scarecrow idea, except it's more of an encouragement. In this case, though, Priapus did act as a scarecrow because the magic of the statue's penis sent the witches fleeing in terror. Horace has one written work, Satire 5, which details a road trip that he and his friends took from Rome to Brindisium, harbor town in eastern Italy. And he suffered some of the problems that people might on a modern road trip too, like food poisoning. He said at one point, the food and water caused his stomach to go to war with him. He also describes a female innkeeper who almost killed everyone by burning down the inn because of a cooking fire that got out of control. Now, coming into the early Roman Empire, the first century AD, we have two poets who are in the capital. And these men actually knew each other. They moved in some of the same circles. One of them was Martialis commonly referred to as Marshall, and the other was a man named Juvenal. Now, Marshall was originally from what is now Spain, which was a province of the Roman Empire, and he did return there later in life. But his poems are almost all of them dedicated to people that he knew in the capital. It seems like they were forced to really suck up to wealthier men for dinners, for patronage, for financial help. And it was a bad position to be in, and they really resented that, but it was the only way that they could really survive. Marshall complains in one of his poems about a friend named Crispus, who doesn't really extend those amenities to him. He complains that Crispus only demonstrates friendship with Marshall by farting around him all the time, by feeling relaxed enough to do that. 
In another poem, Marshall attacks a woman named Fescania, who he says was a severe alcoholic, that she chews sweet-smelling flowers, but then her belches make everything worse because that stench combines with the perfume to make something even more foul. And he says, a skunk can't be anything but a skunk. Why not just be yourself, Fescania? Marshall brags in another poem that he once physically assaulted, beat up, his own cook, for spoiling dinner one night. And when his friend said, hey, you're a little harsh with that guy, he said, what worse crime could a cook commit than spoiling dinner? Now, Juvenal had to deal with a lot of the same issues. Juvenal was around during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Domitian ruled right at the end of the first century AD. And in general, the picture of Domitian that's been put together by historians has at least traditionally been a bad one that he was someone who verged on the same level as Caligula or Nero in terms of ordering executions and, in general, showing his cruelty. Domitian is said to have put to death a number of women who were vestal virgins, put them to death for breaking their vows of virginity. This was a very ancient custom of priestesses from high-ranking families in Rome, that while they were still young, unmarried girls, they were dedicated with vows of virginity to the goddess Vesta, the goddess of the hearth, the sacred fire, and that they tended this fire, and if the sacred fire were ever allowed to go out, that it would mean disaster for Rome and the Roman people. So if a Vestal Virgin broke her vow, that was seen as endangering the entire culture, all of the Roman people. So the traditional punishment for that, because we do have recorded instances of women being accused and condemned for doing this, who were Vestals, that they would be buried alive. They were actually put in an underground vault with several days' food and water. Might be wondering what would happen to the man in this case. He would be whipped quite often to death as his punishment. The most famous vestal that Domitian exacted this punishment on was named Cornelia. And many people thought that Cornelia was innocent, but Juvenal apparently did not. Juvenal linked Cornelia with an individual who he really hated in town named Crispinus. Marshall mentions this guy too. Crispinus was originally from Memphis in Egypt. He'd been a fish seller, and somehow he had gotten in good with the emperor Domitian, and Domitian had promoted him to the rank of a minor noble called an equestrian. But Crispinus was fond of wearing really nice clothes and jewelry wherever he went, and just really flaunting his money really badly. Juvenal hints that Crispinus was responsible for this broken vow of Cornelius. And he says, What's reprehensible to any other citizen? is just fine with Crispinus. We don't know if Crispinus was punished, though. Now, we'll end on a lighter note with our final author, Apuleius, from the 2nd century AD. And Apuleius's most famous work is a novel about as strange as the Satyricon of Petronius that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Its official title is The Metamorphosis, The Change. But because the main character is changed into a donkey— it is also commonly known by the title of The Golden Ass, a title almost tailor-made to cause Google search disasters for college students. In this story, the hero, of sorts, is a man named Lucius. Lucius is traveling through the region of Thessaly in northern Greece, a place renowned for witchcraft, and he meets a man whose wife dabbles in witchcraft. This woman, Pamphile, has the ability to change people into animals. She demonstrates this power by changing herself into a bird in front of Lucius and other onlookers, and then she casts the spell on him, but he changes into a donkey. She's very apologetic. 
She says, the antidote for this is for you to eat a fresh rose. I don't have any around here, but I'll bring you one in the morning to change you back. They put him in the barn with the other animals, and then thieves break into the house in the barn, and they make off with poor Lucius. And he goes through a series of adventures where he gets beaten up, at one moment almost slaughtered and transformed into dinner. And worst of all, he is hired to perform an act of intercourse in public with a condemned woman who had poisoned several people. He does manage to escape right before he's forced to do this. But he finally gets out of his predicament because the goddess Isis changes him back to human form. Isis had become a kind of universal savior mother goddess in the Roman Empire, believed in by a large number of people. And scholars today think that Apuleius might have been a believer. But if that's the case, I think that's a really strange way for him to have praised her. So these are some of the great authors of antiquity, and who says filthiness can't be edifying and educational? I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. The music that you heard was Magical Gravitation from RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and The Wrong Step by Mac Tabol at EpidemicSound.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.